came to my mind as I was praying too. I should have thought about Diane. Diane is at home this morning having her AC and heating repaired for the umpteenth time. I'm not sure how many times. Poor thing. She's been working on this for weeks. But um, a, a little word about her. She is about to embark on a very exciting adventure. God is giving her an opportunity to teach inductive Bible study to a co-worker of hers. And so she said she's tried to get the friend to come here, but she's, I think, in either intimidated or I don't know what the, the thing is. She just doesn't want to come or whatever. I don't know what the reason. But she said um, she, would, she is willing to let Diane take her through some of the basics and teach her. So lift up Diane. She's nervous, of course. And I was nervous first time I did it, too. We all are, right? But it's very exciting when you take that step to the next level where you go from being a student to begin to teach others about this method of study that helps people to really grow in their faith. It's such a gift. It's a gift that you give to them. Um, and so I'm excited for her to so lift that up to, to the Lord for Diane. Yeah, now you're in her seat, so it'll all go and wear off, right? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. All right. Well, we had a great week this week of um, study in Chapter 12 of Hebrews. We've made a step forward. I was talking to a couple of people already this morning, and I was saying how I kind of wish we had hung a little longer in chapter 11 and taken the time to go through some of those examples of people's lives and actually gone back into those Old Testament references and studied them out a little bit more thoroughly and developed our insight, because I know there's so much treasure yet to be seen in the individual stories, right? To go back to the Adam and Eve story or, or the Esau story or the um, uh, Abraham story, what, any of these, they are all just great treasures and they would have been so much fun to really discuss and talk about. But um, for some reason, they didn't do that. They wanted you to stay up here on this higher plane where you're looking at the general message of it rather than the details of the lives. So I get what they did, but it, it kind of, for me, is like, oh, man, I wanted to, you know, I would have liked to have studied more because sometimes the, the practical example of even just one facet of faith, walking by faith, examining one person's life and seeing that is so helpful to us, don't you think? Isn't it, isn't it true when you see a life experience, you go, that's how they handled it in that one situation. And that. Think about Abraham and what he went through in his faith walk. Tell me what you do, because he is the most obvious one that we know very well, I think. Um, what do we know about his faith walk that tells us he really had a faith? Okay, he believed God, and it, so it tells us that out, outright, which is very helpful, right? He moved to a strange place. Very good, right. So God appeared to him somehow through, through the word, through a, a prayer time, through dreams. Somehow God spoke to him and said, you are to move. I, I'm sure it was a dream. It had to be something like that. Or, a, or an angel appeared to him and said, God's told me to tell you, right? So he says, move to this land that I am going to give to you. And he did it. Can you imagine the Lord speaking to you? Okay, is there a current day example of something like that that you can think of just off the top of your head? 
Who, who sometimes get a calling to go to a foreign land they don't know anything about? Missionaries, all the time. They do, they, and to me it's very similar. It's in, the, it's in the same likeness. Obviously with God's and with Abraham there was a specific agenda. But the idea of the faith being built, the faith being demonstrated with Abraham taking all that he had and packing up and going in obedience to God that to me is a huge example. And I think of in my own life, some of the smaller things. Have you had smaller things in your life where God has said, do this or don't, does anybody want to share something? And, and you felt like, yes, that was God and I did it. Yeah. Why are you going to Texas? <laughs> Poor Californians, you're blowing their minds. You know that, right? <laughs> Yes. And so you went. See, that is perfect. Actually, that lines up very well with the Abrahamic story, where Abraham was called, and at the time God was saying, I'm going to take you to a land, I'm going to uh, show you, and so forth. He hadn't at that point, I don't think, laid out all of the um, stipulations of, I'm going to give you a land, a seed, and a nation. He did that later, after he was already in uh, approaching the land as God saw him step in faith and in obedience did you notice that what go by faith and be obedient to my voice and when he did that then God then took him to the next step and he elevated isn't that an interesting pr progression of how that happens and it's very similar in your life where you said well I don't know why but I feel like God is and so since I'm pursuing God I'm gonna go so you just by faith you step out and you do it because you're seeking God mm-hmm that packed up everything and came to Connecticut. And they didn't have any relatives. They didn't know where to go or anything else. They came into the church and, um, you know, and they said they were just like Abraham. He says, I didn't know where to go, what to do. He says, but here I am. Here I am, but you don't know why. It makes me think of a verse in Acts 17 that says that, you know, that God created out of, created, um, out of one man, all the world, all the nations, but he has determined the exact time and place that they should live, that they should seek God and find him, although he is not far from any one of you. So you don't have to go to a foreign land to find God. You don't have to leave your city to find God. However, sometimes God says to you, do this, and when you act and respond to God's voice 
in obedience, then he brings to you the fullness of faith. And that's exactly what happened to Abraham. I remember when we were teaching the Abraham story, and more than one occasion, I've had students kind of looked at me like I was, like, lost my mind or something because they, they thought, well, didn't Abraham already have faith? Wasn't he already saved because he left the land of the Chaldeans and came? And the answer is n no. According to Scripture, it wasn't until many years into this, several years into this anyway, when he came into the land, when God cut the covenant with him, then he said it was credited to him as righteousness. He had believed God and he had stepped by faith. There was a, there was a progression. This is the journey into faith. And what I love is another verse came to my mind when you were uh, speaking about that was in Hebrews chapter 4 where it says God knows the heart, yes. right? He, his word penetrates and it, and it can discern between thought and intent. And because of that, God honors some and he does not honor others. Have you, did you kind of pick up on that in even this week in our lesson because the idea that when we when we look at the Esau account when we look at the Israelite account we've already covered the Israelites back in chapter four again many of them died in the wilderness why disobedience and unbelief again back to the basics belief and obedience and those two basically are brothers and sisters in this thing. They go hand in hand in the faith walk, that obedience and, and faith are to be united. So people who stand alone in a verbal obedience, but have, or I mean a verbal confession, but have no obedience, what does that tell you about them? Something's, something is still missing, right? Because the, the reality of what Hebrews is teaching us is that, that the evidence is, according to Hebrews chapter 3, right, verses 6 and 14, those who um, hold fast are those who have received. Let me go back to it and read it because it's been too long. Uh, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. And the other one says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now that's not saying that you get saved by holding fast. It's saying that if you are saved, you will hold fast, right? And then throughout the whole book, what, is the, what are the exhortations? Did anybody have a chance to go back this week uh, uh, or even last week, and look at some of those let us statements. Have you done that anytime recently? C can you think of some of the things, what are some of the let us statements that are in this book that you can think of? Let us hold fast, number one. Okay, let us hold to the assurance. Let us draw near. There you go. Let us not neglect the gathering. Now, see, have you noticed how everything that you're talking about are action words, right? They're, they're, they're verbs, right? And so he's not saying you get saved by doing those things. He's saying because you are saved, therefore this is what's expected that should be an out, an, uh, a result or an outpouring from that faith. If you have true faith, there should be some kind of an exhibition of it in your life. Well, in that same storyline of mine, I mean, I would like to draw near to the word and to, to the truth because I was seeking God, but I was seeking in all other kinds of um, uh, verbiage. I mean, I'd go to the jewelry store and they'd have all kinds of things 
have to God, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go toss them into the Bible. Or if I did, it was kind of jumbled. So I do know the distinction for me, and I think that's why when I love Bible study, it's because it's true, and I can see the, the definition. As soon as I gave my heart over, I said, okay, I'll be willing to look at the Word mm-hmm. and see if it really has any credence, because I had all those arguments that everybody said. <laughs> Yes. And all of a sudden, even though I had teachers and people to help me in the beginning and also, but it was one of those, um, those awful moments. And whenever I hear anybody say things about the world, you have to stay close to the word. You have to, that was what God was, that was the truth. And yeah. The reason you find the truth is if you do stay in the word. And I think so many people do not get sanctified or do not walk in sanctification because they don't get near the word. And they're just listening to it. Yes. What was the fir- what was the first correction and rebuke in the considering the let us statements in here? There was one kind of a let us statement which p- pertained to the word. What was the first rebuke he gave them? They had not been accustomed to the word of righteousness, and for that reason, what had happened to them? They got dull of hearing, and they remained what? Babies, infants, right? And for that reason, it, th- this put them at danger of a, of a couple of things. What were they? Danger of falling away, going back maybe to the... For some now, the very interesting thing about the idea of the going back, in this book, he addresses those who do go back. And later in chapter 10, he, he speaks about those people who do that and say, says of them, basically, they are those who trample underfoot the Son of God. Now, these are people who never knew God, right? So the ones who go back, these are not people who were saved, but they are people who had been affixed to the church, had been participating in church, but at some point, something happened and they go back okay that that's an important thing I think for us to to interpret when we're looking at this because can you lose your salvation no No. we know that that is an absolute you cannot lose your salvation however there are many people that that come uh, to church on a regular basis they get involved and they may even be there for you know a number of years or for a longer period of time. And then all of a sudden, something will happen in their life, and they will do a complete turnabout. Do you remember a few years, a few months back, I talked to you about a gentleman who visited our church who, had, who was um, a pastor's son, and he himself became a pastor, and he had raised a family and so forth. But then one day, something happened, and he turned his back on it. Now, when he presented himself to me, he gave me a calling card that said, Sowing Seeds of Doubt. That was pure apostasy. Now, this is a man who had a claim to be in faith, even became a pastor. And yet what? He obviously did not have faith. Now, this is where you and I can can see the value of of the study in Hebrews where what every now and then there's a little nugget of truth that's dropped into here. It's a doctrinal truth that if you don't take it out and hold it and lay it on to certain situations that you will come across in your life, you will be totally baffled by life. (laughs) You'll You'll see a person who's a pastor, who went through seminary, who preached the word of God, and yet now he's turned away and walked off. 
Well, what I can tell you is what Hebrews has said in chapter 4, he said after he told us in chapter 3 that there were many who fell in the wilderness, he warns them that there, he says, least there be any among you who do not enter into the rest of God. You need to examine yourselves, see, and, and, and basically come into that faith, but faith is coupled by an act of obedience. There has to be a willing to be obedience to God's word. And then he follows that very next thing with a statement, but God knows the heart. Okay? He's the one who knows who does and who doesn't. And there are plenty of those who, I wouldn't say plenty. I think there are a few of those who, who make a claim to being saved but really are not now. It's not our job to go around and figure out who isn't. That's not what we're about. But I do think this book is written so that you and I will examine ourselves and say, am I truly walking with God? Am I truly sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption? And so it's, it's a very serious book. When he says, I want you to press into maturity, he's serious. I mean, he's not giving us minor um, doctrinal points here. He's given us some really heavy stuff, stuff that makes people squirm in their seats and feel really uncomfortable about the things that you say because they, they don't like the idea that we judge one another. You know, that's been something that has been in the church for so many years. Don't judge others. Well, I'm not a here to judge others. I'm here to say we need to judge ourselves, but it has to be said out loud and it has to be discussed and examples need to be put out there for us to learn from. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Would you say that's biblically true? Yeah. That there's a book in the Bible where we see examples for us to learn from? Yeah. Gee, I wonder what chapter that was. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. The whole thing is all about examples that say this is what real faith looks like. And so today what I want to do to start us off, um, I, wanted to, though, I did want to say one more thing. You just came back, Martha just came back from Israel. And there's another opportunity of taking uh, a person who has faith, but being obedient to God to go somewhere. I mean, she had this desire to go, right? I mean, you could spend your money on a lot of things, but to spend your money to go to Israel is a big commitment. But, and I do believe it's also a movement of God in a person's life. I know that in my personal life, when God, not through a vacation, it was through a military move, but God took us to that part of the world, it was transforming to my life, absolutely transforming. What, what would you have to say on that, Martha? Anything? Oh, oh. What, tell, us, tell us about um, what you felt like God really showed you spiritually, uh, kind of on the whole about that trip. But now you are. <laughs> I mean, I was that person maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. And a lot of times now I do this with getting back at it. I mean, it's so amazing that the way God put it all together. I remember my first times, you know, the standing in specifically biblical recorded 
locations, geographical locations, and standing there and going, wow, it really is true. It wasn't that I never thought it wasn't. I always knew the, the word of God was true, but there's, it's like it took it to a different level. It was like to a heightened place of going, the reality is to see it and touch it, right? And th that to me was the most transforming thing about that kind of a trip for me, um, it does. And now, when you study the Word of God, there's such an excitement about it, which explains part of my craziness up here, why I'm always so excited about everything. But for me, it's because it's, it's true. These places are living, existing places, and they were, they were events that occurred in history that you can go and see and touch and feel, and you see that God reached down into the lives of humanity and he did so for the purpose of being a help to man. He became flesh to help man, right? To give us propitiation for sins. And he still does. And he sti well, and of course, he still does. That blood has an eternal ongoing result, right? The work of that blood. But the idea that, that our faith takes a, it takes a heightened step when you walk by faith and obey God to go and do whatever it is he's called you to do. It might even be something as simple as a ministry. God calls you to go serve at a soup kitchen or to work at a thrift shop or to uh, sew quilts for, you know, babies that are sick in a hospital or whatever, and it's all done in the name of Jesus. And when you step into those ministries, work at, a, at an abortion clinic, right? When you step in, pardon? I'm sorry, uh, uh, prevention, right. I'm so sorry, Carrie, an abortion prevention center, right. Oh, really, let's correct me on that one for sure. I am so sorry. <laughs> my brain was in the right place, but not my mouth. And that happens a lot. So, so, <laughs> so when you go into the, the pregnancy crisis center, is that the correct name? <laughs> and you step into that position by faith, be, believing that's where God is calling you to be, and all of a sudden, dominoes start falling in your life your eyes get opened you get a sense of exhilaration of purpose you see what God's design is in all you know we sit here in this classroom we study 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 what do you do with what you're studying right and so when, when you take it then to the world and you start putting it into action and you start seeing God move, you start seeing people's lives change. And sometimes it's slow and sometimes it's very small things here and there. You do not know the seeds that you're planting. Uh, Pastor Rob talked yesterday, though, about how we need to be bold in actually giving the gospel, speaking the words, uttering them to people. because it's. But you also have to use wisdom in who it is that, you know, you're reaching out to because some just do not want to. The scripture says, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. And so you have to figure out who it is that has ears to hear. And that's a slow thing. But by stepping into faith and doing a project, I, where's Lise? Is she here? This Oh, there she is. And her, your new ministry with, <coughs> oh, good. Yeah, and so when you do that, you start seeing God move, and you start feeling that you're a, a valuable tool in the hand of God. In a small little piece, you're doing your part, and it, and it might sometimes seem small, but I can tell you it's powerful. It's big, right? Oh, yay! Awesome, awesome. 
Yeah, it, well, you know, and it's a ministry that's needed, and I foresee that this is going to grow and be really big. I really do. I, f I think there's going to be uh, baby, little baby offsprings of what you're doing, and together you're going to find that God is going to bring all the right people together. This is the idea of walking by faith. Now, Abraham stepped out. He left a, a land and that was his home to go to a place he didn't know by faith and then God began to bless him as he went and at, at a certain point then God credited him that as righteousness because he believed God okay now that takes us back to what we did last week last week we did a whole homework study on the subject of faith now I found that you know we have a, a, a kind of a clinical definition out of the book of Hebrews but it but understand it's limited you know, it's a part of a, of a definition. But let's start with that. In verse 1 of chapter 11, what do we see that faith is? Okay, it's assurance of things hoped for. And conviction... Of things not seen. And I like to always put in there the word yet. <laughs> because God has promised them. And what you're believing for God is what? What is it you're believing then? Okay. So tell me about some of the things that, that God has um, promised us. And what are some of the things that we've not yet seen? That okay. His second coming for one. The fact that he's coming again. And when he comes again, what do we know he said he's going to do? He's going to judge the earth for, for unrighteousness. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, right? And he's going to establish what? His kingdom. And how long will he rule and reign on this earth? 1,000 years. So these are some of the things that are hoped for. Are there any others? I love that. He'll be he'll be thousand he'll be bound for a thousand years and, and then after that he's only released for a short time long enough for God to do what? Completely destroy him, right? Throw him cast him where? Into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, right? So there's gonna come a judgment of Satan and the work of Satan and of those who follow him at at a certain point. What a hope that is. What a hope we have knowing that our God is not only full of love and compassion and mercy and patience, but he's also a God who will judge that which is unrighteous, which is evil, that which is in opposition to God. And that is a hope we, we stand on, yes? Yes. Okay, we're going there next. Okay, so, I can't see it. right, okay. All right, so saving faith, however, has a slightly different, uh, or there's a little bit more to saving faith, because ge generically the word faith just means faith. It means to believe in something, right, to put your trust on something, to have a conviction about it. I can, you know, I can believe a, a lot of even wacko things, right? <laughs> Last week I said, I can believe I'm going to lose 20 pounds this week. Did it happen? No. no. 
But of course, I guess I didn't have enough faith, right? <laughs> but faith can be in, a, in pretty much anything. The word faith in and of itself is a generic term. But saving faith, and would you say that in the book of Hebrews, the subject of faith is saving faith that they're making reference to? Yeah. And it's distinctive from just a generality. Okay, so we have the idea that faith is assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not yet seen. But in saving faith, he says in verse 6, he defines what it is that you are to have faith in, right? So what is it that you have faith in in verse 6? What must you believe? Must believe that God is, and you must believe... That God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Okay, hold on. I'm okay, I'm gonna show you I'm gonna show you something that God showed me this week on that. And I, I would have, have agreed with you because when I first got to thinking on this, I, that's what made me develop this more. Because I stopped with that one thing. You must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him, right? And I thought, well, okay, but don't you have to believe on Jesus? Okay, so, you know, and I thought you had to believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. You had to believe that he was the promised seed that God had promised would all these things. So I got to thinking, okay, so what does he mean when he says that you must believe that God is? Who is God? So this was really cool. This, I did all my homework. I had my chart completely done, and then God gave me this magazine in the mail. Came just this, two days ago. Just came in the mail. Just got it. Hot off the press, baby. Israel, my glory. And guess what the title is? The name above all names, okay? And in here, there's an article and here's the major page. God is. And I went, that's cool. I wonder if that's going to apply to Hebrews where it says God is. You have to believe that God is. Well, it doesn't actually quote Hebrews, but it still, nonetheless, it, it did address the point that I wanted to clarify. Here, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But this is what it, he says in this article. This is by uh, Mike Stallard. He's the director of international ministries. He's a Bible teacher for the Friends of Israel uh, gospel ministry. He says, when I was a Ph.D. candidate, <laughs> I could only dream, I had to endure comprehensive oral examination before four professors. The most surprising thing to me uh, that I was asked to do was to define God. I had not prepared for such a general, broad inquiry, and I had only heard that type of question from elementary age children at my local church, you know, so it's not something you ever thought about theologically on that higher plane. So he said, I started listing the attributes of God. Now, to me, that's probably what I might do also. And so he, he mentions a couple, and he says, and then I asked the interrogating professor if that was what he wanted. And his response floored me so far, he replied. <laughs> but you haven't said anything that makes me think that you are a Christian. Very interesting. He said a Muslim could say the same thing. Obviously, I needed more precision to express what the Bible teaches about who God is. Now, did you notice what he said? He didn't say... Um, what this one chapter says about who God is or this one verse it says. He says what? What the Bible says about who God is. So God is is a, is a, 
is a comprehensive statement. It's not a pinpoint, okay? So that's what he's going to get at. No technical definition of God appears in his word. God is incomprehensible. The the prophet Isaiah said, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's in Isaiah 55, 9. God in his entirety cannot be grasped by man intellectually. However, God still wants us to know some truth about who he is and how he works in the world. Beyond that, he wants us to know him personally. So the Bible uses narratives, poetries, prophecy, and epistles to lead us into a definition of God. Perhaps the best way to outline the Bible's overall presentation of God is to consider God's attributes, his acts in history, and the fact that God is a trinity. Now, I thought that was really a significant point when he said that. I went, that's what I said. Okay, three persons in one Godhead. And I went, and I got that from Hebrews. <laughs> I was so excited. And so he goes on and, and he elaborates on all those points. So I got to think about that, and I could read his, and it's very, it's very wonderful, but I bet we can do it without even going into what he has to say about this. I want you to tell me, when he says you must believe that God is, now that I've developed and said, we're talking about an inclusive knowledge of who God is, who do you know that God is? What would be some characteristics of God that you would say who God is? Pardon? <laughs> can, you, can you say them from memory? Because that's the most important part. Okay, give me a few from memory. Impartial? Okay, omni. Um, omnipresent? Omniscient? Let's get omnipotent in there since we're doing the omni. Um, hold on, hold on. Okay, omnipotent. Okay, omnipotent. And you said sovereign. That's a really good one. Oh, yay. God is savior. Self-existing. Eternal. Unchanging. Okay, now let's have someone else. <laughs> You're hogging all the fun. You're hogging all the fun. <laughs> you got that one. <laughs> okay, so we can take this into the next step that God is all these things, and we could go on, right? We know He's kind, He's loving, He's full of grace. He's, yes. Okay. I am, there you go. He is the I am, the self-existing one. That's what uh, Carrie said a, a, minute, a minute ago. I like that one. Let's put that one on there. Okay, so now he is, God also also is a three-in-one God, triune. 
right? That's what we didn't believe. Now, that's where the distinction comes from us and other faith systems. They have gods, but they don't believe in our triune God. They don't believe that, that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, and that the three of them work co- cooperatively in both creation and, and the sustaining of life, the giving of salvation's life, and into eternity. They don't believe that. They don't have that triune God. Uh-huh. I love that. Yes, that's 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 it. Okay. So, would you say that 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 expands your idea of the statement that to have faith is to believe that God is? That already we've begun to expand it. Now let's take it to that next area. We want to cover it, that God is the three-in-one God triune. Think back to Hebrews chapter 1, and what did we learn in chapter 1? That Jesus, and who did we learn that Jesus is? Jesus is what? He is God. And that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. We, we see that in... Um, one in chapter one verse eight. And by the way, he's not only God, but he's God he's a God that sits where? At the right hand, At the right hand of the throne of God on his own throne. And chapter one verse eight says, How how long does his throne last? Forever. Forever. He's he is also both the self existing God and the eternal God, just as God the Father is. Because in chapter one, verse three, he explained he is the exact representation, he has the exact nature of God, right? He is God. So chapter one established that Jesus is God. And in doing that, then when you go into Hebrews chapter 11, it says that you must believe that God is. Would you say that includes chapter 1? Yes. That God is Jesus, who is the begotten of God, who came in flesh. And in chapter 2, he came in flesh to do what? To make the propitiation of sins, to be our Savior. So Jesus is God. He is God come in flesh. Uh, he made propitiation. That makes him our savior again. I'm just put that as a quote that he made propitiation. That makes him our savior, just as God the Father is savior. Um, he's resurrected. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What else do you know? Anything that you want to just? Okay, he is the Son of God, and now the word Messiah is not used in here, but the allusion to it is because he's the be- Christ is used. You're right, that's true. And if you take it to the other language, it's the same word. You're right, you're right. He is our, oh, chapter 1, he is the creator, right? All right. Chapter 1 of Genesis tells you all things he makes is good, things he made through, with, and for. Yes, let us make man in our own image. 
Yeah. And John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was God and God and and the and it was the word rather and the word was with God and the word is God and when you drop down to verse 14 it says and the word became flesh. And so here we see in Hebrews that's what it teaches us in chapter 2 is that he became like his brethren taking on flesh and the reason he did it was to do what? To give propitiation to give help to man. And the help is salvation, right? I love it. It's really plenty good. So now, we, would you say this helped uh, Craig a little bit with, with expanding in, on that thought about who is God? God is. Well, this is what God and this now begins to develop the broader picture. And it's all those things that encompasses God. From Genesis to Revelation. Who is God? That's who he is. All of it. Correct? And that's what you must believe, guys. You can't just believe one little point about God and call that a, a sufficient attitude or, or knowledge of who your Savior is. That is one of the reasons this author rebukes them back in chapter 5 and says you need to press into maturity. I can't even talk to you about some of the more deeper things. Uh, at that point, he was talking about Melchizedek, but it could have been any subject. I can't even talk to you about some of these deeper things because you don't really know who your God is. You haven't developed that. You are still back here on the fundamental element elementary things and if I remember let me go back and look at this real quick but one of the the elementaries on this chapter six if you want to follow me um he says not let's therefore leave the elementary teaching about the Christ let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God so there it is again faith toward God and in that faith toward God, in this statement, he's making a reference to Old Testament. And he's saying all those things about God that you know about him, wow, the Old Testament pretty much covers it all. It takes you into the new and back to the old again if you know your doctrines. Which is why he wanted them to mature. And so then he has to go forward, and he does, in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, and he or, yeah, 7, 8, 9, and 10, and he develops their understanding about who Jesus is as God come in flesh, and he is now their great, he is both their great high priest and the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, the old covenant is done, and he says, don't go back. Don't, don't abandon your hope, which is everything. I love the way he ends chapter 6, um, Uh, I thought it was six. Yes. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with, and with them an oath is given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purposes. So there's another quality about him. His purpose, his design, his big plan is unchangeable. It, and he interposed it with an oath. He gave a covenant with Abraham to let Abraham have that confidence that God would absolutely do what he was going to do. Not that God needed to make the oath, but God did. He did so in order to give us assurance, a strong hope, a strong assurance, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God uh, to lie, he we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This is our hope that's set before us. What is our faith in? It's in God. It's in who God is, and it's in its 
totality. And he says, take hold of that hope that's set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, the one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he goes back to his major subject that he had lost them on, where they had gotten confused and they couldn't step forward. I want to add on to this list that God is creator. And back in the beginning, do you remember in chapter 4, he says about concerning creation, um, where he was talking about those who had been disobedient and, and were unbelieving and how they fell in the wilderness. And he says, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. Why? It was not united by faith or with faith. For we who have believed enter the rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my, my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. However, although his works have been finished since when? Before the foundation of the world. He is the creator, but before the creation of the world that we know, he already had a plan in place for man's salvation. And the plan was who? Jesus. Who is who? God come in flesh. And therefore, he comes in flesh. He crushes the head of Satan. He fulfills his word to man. He makes propitiation. He makes a right way. How do you enter into that faith? How do you enter into that salvation, rather? By believing faith. And then the result of believing should, should be evidenced by what? Obedience. So obedience is not a requirement of faith. It's the result of faith. It should be the outflow of faith or the evidence that faith is present, right? Okay, so now that gives us a pretty good review of what we did last week, but develops it just a little bit further. And I, I do still wish we had been able to go in and, you know, look at all of those examples that were recorded for us. And I would say that when we're on break, maybe that's a good time for you to go back and take that. Now that you'll have the totality of Hebrews under your belt, and you'll have a pretty good grip on it, you might want to go back in and look at the li these lives of these men and women that were um, mentioned in the book of Hebrews ele chapter 11, and look to see how does, is faith demonstrated in their life, and am I applying those principles in my own? That might be a good personal, because you have the foundation of context, for your, for your insights that you're going to go in there and not get lost in the storylines that take you off on tangents, but you can be focused on the subject of faith and what do I see about faith in, in these storylines. All right, let's look now forward to chapter 12. We've moved out of 11. Uh, when we uh, last week looked at the big picture of what's going on here, we saw that there is a major segment division that occurs starting in chapter 11. Chapters 1 to, to uh, 10 teach us what subject? Teach us, what, or show us what, what is chapter, the, the major segment division of 1 to 10? It's all about doctrine. Doctrine about, about Jesus, about how he's the better than the old system, that he's the great high priest for them, that he's um, 
the mediator of a new covenant. So all these doctrines are taught to them that, that they were, had fallen short of learning and understanding for themselves because they had failed to press into the maturity of God. Then starting in chapter 11 to 13, what is our focus here? application. So now we're saying, okay, this is the doctrines about that faith. Now let's see how you're going to apply that faith. Now that you have a knowledge of what you're supposed to know, now let's see how you're going to apply it in your life. So that's where we are, just to remind you where we are. So when we enter into chapter 12, we're still in the, in the subject line of application, how we're going to apply what we know. Now what does he tell us here? So how do we break it down? Back to the basics. <laughs> we start with looking for major keywords. Doesn't that make you feel good? It's like, yay, we're back to a, something I know how to do really well at this point, right? Let's look at those keywords. Why, why do we want to look for keywords? What do keywords do for us? It, it shows us what he is emphasizing, okay? It's... It's going to set context for your chapter within the realm of the big picture of your theme, okay? Anything else? Topics or subjects, right? It's just going to, t it's going to show you this, the subject flow. He, so you're going to look for your major keywords. It's going to show you what his emphasis is on the whole, but it's also going to progressively, as you move through it, show subject and subject and subject about that that one particular point he's trying to make in reference to the big picture. The big picture at this point is application concerning your knowledge of faith, your knowledge of salvation, okay? So keywords in chapter 12, let's start there. What keywords did you find? Endure. endure. Okay, endure or endurance. All right. That's the first one. Discipline. How much do we love that word? <laughs> I know, okay. Exactly. It's pretty, it's pretty heavy. Although endurance is also pretty heavy there, isn't it? Okay. What else do we find for keywords? Sons. I did that too. Sons. Yeah, exactly. Children and sons. Fathers, son. Okay, yeah. In, I'll I, you, I can just kind of put that on there. And actually, yeah, because they're like a collective. It's a demonstration, right? What does he do when he mentions the sons and the fathers? He takes an earthly example that you can relate to easily, and he, and he demonstrates a spiritual truth about our relationship with God, our Father. Okay? Obviously, Jesus. Make room on top to always add Jesus later, because we always come back to him, don't we? Jesus and God. Okay? All right, sanctification. How many of you uh, found that when she gave you words to look up, that that helped you find some of your keywords? <laughs> you went back and you went, oh, I missed that word. Let's go back and look at that. Yeah, that is a keyword. Now, what makes a word key? How come it's a keyword? 
frequency is one of the qualities. But when you look at the word sanctification, is it frequently used? No, no but is it significant? Yes. So another way of defining a key word is that if it's removed from the context, it leaves uh, something void or without a measure of meaning or understanding. So um, sometimes something like sanctification is just mentioned one time, right? But in its totality, it really is affected by the whole chapter. The whole chapter could be referred back to the quality of sanctification, right? Especially once we did our word definitions. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, it does. It absolutely does. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. That Jesus. So we got Jesus. Jesus, who is our the author and the perfecter of our faith, which, by the way, is our subject, which, by the way, is the big picture. Now that he's giving you the doctrines about your faith, now he's saying in faith, fix your eyes on Jesus because he is the author of your faith. And now in, in the uh, application quality, the doing part of it, he is also the perfecter, right? Yes. Absolutely. That's ab absolutely. And there were actually, there's a lot of really good kind of additional things you can add into that. When you think about the uh, fixing your eyes on Jesus, what is it about Jesus's life that helps us to endure? Not just the cross, although he that is one thing that he mentions that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. But what are some other things about Jesus's life? Have you guys ever done the, that kind of a study where you're in one of the gospels and you're saying, well, how did Jesus do this and what did he do there? Do, are there other qualities about Jesus that you look, you fix your eyes on him, that you not grow weary and lose hope? Yes, and that he says absolutely. His patience. Okay, his his focus to do the will of the Father. I only do what the Father does. I only say what the Father says. Okay, he's the mediator of a new covenant. So, w is that a key word for us? New the new covenant, it sure is. And it, and it comes in contrast with the other. So, we could look at contrast, too, as we're doing that. Let's look at some contrast. The new covenant, again, is just quickly, very briefly, but it's mentioned, in, and it implies the old. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mount Sinai? Mm-hmm. That's right. No, it doesn't, but we know it's Mount Sinai because we go and look at it. And it's contrasted with Mount Zion, but in its contrast, it, this one is the one that can be touched, Right? And this Mount Zion, is this the earthly Mount Zion? It's the heavenly Jerusalem. Heavenly can't be touched. So 
we could take this down to another level and we would say if it can't be if it can be touched then it's physical right and what is this one spiritual very interesting how that little contrast really developed itself quite extensively Oh, that's cool. Here, fearful and approachable. Very cool. I didn't catch that one. That's good. Yes. Yes. Yes, the let us comes up very heavily again in this one. And it, of course, we know it's a book keyword, let us and better than, right? But it's a good one to bring up again. Can be shaken, can't be shaken. Okay. So we're just we're just kind of moving on down the line on this. Can be shaken. Okay, I'll put that's in verse twenty. Hold on a second. Let me see if I can get some verses in here because I didn't do that part. Uh, Mount Zion in Mount Sinai is 18 and 22 and 22. And then um, sons. Now, here, there's another one contrasting with sons. There's sons versus what? Illegitimate children. Okay, so we see sons in verse 7 and illegitimate children in 8. You're right, earthly father. It doesn't say it that way, but it's there. Earthly father and heavenly father. Uh, what verses were those? Uh, is that for, would that be verse 7 and 8 again? 9 and 10? Okay, hopefully I got that right. If not, fix it on your sheet. <laughs> okay. Um, I saw a contrast in verse 11. Does anybody else see it there or is it just me? There's a word but and a word yet in there, which indicates that there's a kind of a contrast. Yoshiko? Mm-hmm. Yes, very good. So the contrast there seems sorrowful for the moment, yet it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. So n not joyful versus pe uh, peaceful fruit of righteousness. It doesn't sound like a contrast, but this this author does apply it in that way, doesn't he? He uses the word but. Uh-huh. When you get the word study, I saw one that I didn't pick up that's in the markings, and that was the difference between sin and sanctification. Ooh. Sin is a separation from God. Okay. Sanctification is separation 
Oh, good one. I missed that altogether. Sin and sanctification. Although it's obvious when you say it. But <laughs> as soon as you say it, it's like, yeah. <laughs> right. How are you, what are you going to live out in your life? Are you going to live in sin or are you going to live as a sanctified follower of Christ? And are you going to pursue sanctification or are you going to pursue sin? Which are you going to do? Which, by the way, was that a problem for this particular group of believers? What, yes, they were, they were in danger of falling back into sin, some of them, right? Under the law. Right. Which has already been done, which means they are trampling underfoot the Son of God and they're, and they're making light or rejecting basically the blood of the covenant, which means what about, their, about, their, about the subject of salvation? Are they saved or are they not if they are trampling underfoot the blood? But by which you have been sanctified is a general statement about the fact that God has done this, not to them specifically. Let me show you something here in a minute. Okay, hold on. Hold tight. Okay, so one of the things for me that struck me really strongly in this particular week's homework, and in some ways I kind of wish we'd started here and then gone back to the beginning. I think I've said this a couple of times, but if you get a, a proper understanding of who the audience is and who this speaker is, then you begin, I think, to filter everything else in this book through this other prism. And we've talked about this more than once. This is not the first time I've said this. So I see in this book, in this particular chapter specifically, that this is a congregational address. One of the things that Kay asked you and I to do on day five was at the end of it is to say, tell me, what do you see in the flow of this thought? How does this fit into the message, right, that has been going on thus far? Well, we know when he starts by laying initially mostly um, doctrinal teaching, and in there there's a couple of rebukes, right? In chapter 6 and 10, have, we have some rebukes. Uh, then when you hit chapter 12, what do you see happening? What is the flow of thought there? Tell me some of your insights. Flip over to day five on your homework and tell me what, what are some things that you came up with on that? Because to me, this was real insightful question. Okay. Right. Okay. That brings you into the discipline of God. You know, and God disciplines us because we're his children. Right. And if and if he does not discipline what? You're illegitimate. So what is the implication there? The implication is we should be getting disciplined. There should be some discipline and you should be submitting to it and and people should be and it also indicates that there are some illegitimate among them. Right? I mean the implication is that then there may be some illegitimate among them. Has he said that before? Has he said anything like that before? Can you think of it? Well, when he says if you're not doing this, then 
Yeah. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering, we may fall, seem to have come short of it. So when he makes a statement like that, who is he talking to? What is his, what is his audience? It's a congregational address. This is just like Pastor Rob when he preaches in our church. I don't know who your pastor is, but whoever he is, when he preaches in sermon in his church, he's speaking to a general audience. And yes, he's speaking to believers. Yes, of course. And on the whole, he makes most of his statements on the basis, I'm believing that you are all believers or you wouldn't be in my church, right? But he always caveats, and he does it more than once through as he's progressing through this, where he makes suggestions that they need to examine to see whether or not they really are in the faith or not. And he makes several statements, like in chapter 3, verses uh, 6 and 14, where he says, but you only are if you're holding fast. This is one of the indicators. He's not saying it's how they get saved. He's saying this is how I know whether or not you are or you aren't. So the idea of the, the fact that there may be illegitimate children among them, he's saying those who will not allow themselves to be disciplined by God, potentially, he's not saying they are, he's just saying potentially these are illegitimates. And he does it in a real general way by just referencing the, 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 the subject matter of parenting. He makes it general, right? So he brings it up to a level where he's not poking a, his finger in the eye of anyone special so that they don't feel put on the spot, but he's allowing then the Holy Spirit to bring conviction if it needs to be there. Does that make sense? I see a verse in chapter 12 that really indicates that this is what he's doing. That basically he gets to this point in the message and now he's giving an altar call. I see it as an altar call. What, do you all see it? Tell me. if you. Yes, thank you. Read it out. Okay, good. Read it out loud. Mm -hmm. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things that can be shaken as of created things, so that those things can, cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, now what he does is he says, that's true in the literal, and God is going to do that in the literal, but there's also a spiritual reality of this as well. Things that can be shaken and things that cannot. And he says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, why? Because it's the spiritual. Did you see how we took it? What can be shaken, what cannot be shaken, right? What can be touched, what's heavenly, what cannot be touched. And then we, and we see that it was... Um, uh, the physical versus the spiritual there. Therefore, since we receive this spiritual kingdom, which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Why? Do we have another quality of God given to us about who our God is? Who is God? He is a consuming fire. Now, is he talking about, cons what kind of consuming is he talking about there? Is that the discipline of I'm going to slap you on the back of the hand? No. No. This consuming fire, did anybody do word study on it? It wasn't on your list, I know. And you had a lot of words to look at. Come on. Anybody? No? 
consuming fire, it literally means to consume, to destroy completely. This is speaking of eternal cons- uh, condemnation. This is a, a consuming fire. It's speaking of alluding to that day when all those things which cannot be, that, that cannot be shaken will have entered into the new heaven and the new earth. And this earth, what's going to happen? It's, how is it going to be destroyed? By fire. By fire. C- total consumption. So he is saying, look, you have a God that for you is salvation. He came in flesh. He did all these things for you and I. You need to know all these things, adhere to all these things, and believe by faith all these things are true about who your God is. God and God God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you need to believe it all. And in believing that, you walk by faith in it. And you accept the discipline of God. And by the way, would you say his letter to these people is a word of discipline? I would say on the whole, when he says it's a word of exhortation, I, we talked about this months and months ago, remember? Ha, huh, I call this a rebuke. <laughs> I mean, he's pretty harsh to these people. When you go through a lot of these statements where he gives us let us statements, they are just, he's just pretty much laying it on the line and saying, look, you need, you need to get your act right. You need to be, you should be teachers by now, and instead you're still babies right? And he's saying, you need to examine yourself to, to at least you, you miss it. So he's actually, he's, he's both warning and encouraging and he's instructing. The whole totality of exhortation is used. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, okay, good question. Here's a good question for you then. Okay, if that's true, that discipline can have varying degrees, different factions of it, how do you want to be disciplined by the Lord? (laughs) Without pain, (laughs) right? Right? Now, in faith, you will not meet the consuming God, the the God who consumes by fire. You will not meet that God ever. Not if you're truly in faith and you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But there is a discipline that is also addressed. And what I'm saying to you, it's like, it's like holding, you know, two balls in your hand and they're being in balance here. And he's addressing an audience who, if you're in faith, this is true. And if you're not in faith, this is true. Right? So you have a God who is, a, who is your father who disciplines right? He is your father because he's both your creator, and in that regard, he's your father, but he's also your father if in faith, he's your father uh, who is the father of spirits, right? He is the father of us by faith. So he's holding both these balls, and he keeps, this author keeps balancing them because he's making a congregational address. You cannot take a verse and totally isolate it and only make an application to the believer, you cannot. In this book, it, can, it depends on who he's speaking to. And he makes it clear that he's saying over and over, examine yourself. See where you are in this. Let me clarify again. <clears throat> the discipline, he said, is just training, instruction, and all. Mm-hmm. We learn through the things that we experience. Yes. Which then brings us into sanctification. Right. Us, and he says, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. And so then he gives us how we, we act as sanctified. We pursue peace with all men, and we see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. He gives another warning in there 
that he warns against bitterness and all that stuff with his sanctification. Uh-huh. Then he reminds us that we're under a new covenant. Yes, yes. And he compares the blood of Abel, which calls out for vengeance, and, uh-huh. and the blood of Christ, which brings righteousness. Uh-huh. And then he goes on to the final step, which is uh, the warnings against that's right. Very good. Don't reject it. That means that some of them maybe have not accepted it. Are you catching it? I, that's why for me, this chapter was the most, the most I think, enlightening. It really, it, it, it was like the glue that concreted it all together at the end where I really saw this most clearly as a congregational address because he goes through this whole rendition just like a pastor would and at the end he gives an altar call. And, and then he's going to conclude it, follow up with a few more exhortations after it. Now, let's just do the flow of thought on this together. Since we've, we've done pretty good on, the, on these things, let's do this flow of thought. We know that the major thing going on here is he wants them to endure in discipline, right? Endure discipline. And we just talked about what does that mean? It can mean all kinds of things. It's discipline from... For endure the di- he wants as believers you to endure the discipline that he wants to put upon you for the purpose of sanctification, right? All right. But then he, he contrasts it with a warning, but I'm going to put it over here, but our God is a consuming fire. And that is a warning to them that if, if they're not understanding about their God, that God is also the God who is the judge of the earth, that he's righteous because of righteousness, he will judge the unrighteous and the sin. And therefore, in that, there's a day of consuming fire that's coming. It's a warning for those who have not, have not come into that faith. Okay, so he says now, endure, endure, and endure discipline. So, I thought this was a really good one, again, just to show you how nicely this particular chapter follows kind of the pattern that most inductively mostly you can see is if you mark key words, you can see changes in paragraphs by looking at your key word changes. Did you all notice that on your sheet? That whatever color you marked the word endurance, do you see kind of where endurance is? What verses is endurance in? One, two, three right? Then what, what keyword pops up? Discipline. And it goes from verse 4 to what? Uh, well, 11. Because then there's another keyword. 11 is the word, the last word for discipline is in verse 11, right? And then he says, therefore. Did you catch the word therefore? That means there's a change in another paragraph, correct? If you're seeing this on your sheet, isn't that kind of cool? Did you, how many of you guys didn't notice that before? Because I think it's exciting when I, when I pay attention to things like that and I go, oh my gosh, there's my paragraphs for me right there. Boom, boom, boom. Yes, and it brings up the next yeah. major subject, which is what? What is your sanctification? So there's another key. Okay, so let's look at one to three. What is going on in one to three? We know we're to endure in discipline. Now, how are we to endure in discipline? By doing what? Heinz? Yes, okay, by fixing, by fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's how you're to endure, by fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's 
actually awesome because he starts the chapter. When he gets into the part about, in, about how that we are to endure uh, in discipline, he starts by saying, first and foremost, set your eyes on Jesus. That's where you got to start. you got to keep your eyes there first and foremost because that is your ultimate anchor, right? And if you do that first and foremost, then the rest of this is going to start to fall into place for you. But if you don't start there, what? How weak are you when you stop thinking about Jesus as your focus, as the end goal of all that you're doing in this faith walk is Jesus, right? The relationship that you have with him, what he has done for you. All these doctrines that were taught in chapters 1 to 10 about who he is for you. He is God. He is God come in flesh. He's the ruler of the, of the earth. He's going to come back. He's going to establish a kingdom. He's, he's the better sacrifice, better than the, the blood of bulls and goats, right? It's the one which made propitiation as opposed to was a temporal thing until he would come. He is the thing that was to come. He's the real deal. And so he's here. So fix your eyes on Jesus, 1 to 3. Then 4 to 11. Value, di okay, that's good. Value, discipline. Now, why, how are you to value discipline? Don't consider it, Don't consider it lightly, okay? Endure it. And how are you endure? Endure it as what? Patiently. What is, the, what is the demonstration in there? What is the key, other key word in there? Sons. As sons, right? So let's see if we can incorporate all this. So as sons, because sons is a key word, right? Yeah. So we're going to put on here. As sons, what? Endure it. Okay, so that's what we have. Endure discipline as sons. Anything else you want to add on to that? Or as sons, sons of God if you want to? I know. And if you refuse it, what does that say about you? If you absolutely refuse to be disciplined by God, then what is that saying about you? Then you may be an illegitimate son. So maybe you want to say as sons who are legitimate. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. As sons who are loved. How about that? I like that. Okay, is, does it say that in that, in, in uh, through 11? Uh, okay, to share in his holiness. You could, do, you could add, you could add all that. Now, some of these others are, what, what do you call qualifiers to the initial statement that you're his son? If you're a legitimate son, you are to endure disciplines. Now, so you could put as legitimate sons, that word legitimate could go in there. Because the contrast that we saw was the illegitimate ones, right? Yes. Not in the context of what we're speaking about here, no. Because these are the ones who believe all this. And therefore, they've entered in, right? Yeah. So it's all about context. There, there are, um, Scripture speaks about sons of God and one, and... Uh, you know what? That's a really good, that's a broad question. Sons of God in the Bible on the whole, I do believe are speaking about those of faith. However, he often calls Israel sons of God too, and many of them fell in the wilderness unsaved. But 
maybe the illusion in the statement is the believing ones. I don't know. Oh, in the New Testament, sons of God, in the New Testament, sons of God, I think, I, I would bet, I would, I haven't looked at it, but I would bet that the, those are mostly be, the, speaking to believers. Children of God, I think, um, you know, in Romans, is, is for, for sure, Paul clearly considers them believers. Believers, okay. Yeah. yeah. The other, and something just struck my mind, though, an illegitimate son is still a son. So what's the question? Because the son, son, you know, sons in the idea that God created all humanity. Yeah, okay. Okay. And that's where you do have to, this is why our doctrines are so important. You've got to split hairs on everything. You don't want to take a word and just say in general, well, that means this. Well, then that means an unbeliever doesn't have to submit to discipline. Is that true? No, that's not what God says. Now, can you sin unto death? Yes, because you didn't submit. Yes, but your discipline's going to get more severe and more severe if you're a legitimate child, Right. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers. Okay, now this is interesting. Okay, okay, think about this. The idea of discipline is talking also about things like, I mean, the things that happen to discipline us, the sufferings and the, and the so forth. Would you say that suffering comes on the whole world or only on believers? Okay, so I think when he's talking about the idea, the sub, the general subject of discipline that can come, and it, and it does come on the on the whole world, and and for those that it falls on, who are in unbelief, it's for the purpose of what? I'm not saying that he. It says he does not discipline specifically discipline those who are illegitimate. A, a father does not. That's the demonstration. But if God brings hardships on an unbeliever in the world. What is it that God is trying to accomplish to bring them into faith? Right. So you just have to take everything down to its obvious conclusion for each individual account. You can't just make a sweeping thing and say this is always true. But if I know this. If, if I'm a legitimate child, what he's saying to me is I, as his legitimate child, I am to endure in his discipline. And that discipline is, is spoken for me in the word of God clearly. It lays it out, the do's and the don'ts that we see in there. Do this and don't do that. And this book of Hebrews gets real detailed on that. To pursue certain things and to hold fast to certain things. It's almost sort of like Old Testament culture here, right? We are. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, they, they were, what was it called? They would be cast out even, right? right. So I think this is part of the connection. I think that's a good point. Very good point, Heinz. So really, you can split the hairs on this if you're looking at it purely from what they would be thinking as Hebrew-minded men and women who just came out of the law. An illegitimate ch child has no inheritance, and they don't belong to, to the family of God. Absolutely. So good point, Heinz. I like that. Good job. Good job. Okay. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Absolutely. You do. And you know what? How important, how important. That is important. I mean, if you think about what he just said, 
to step back and say, wait, 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 let's think about this in context. Who is he speaking to? How would they view this statement? What would they be thinking about when you speak of legitimate versus illegitimate? And when you bring it down to that point, you, then you get a clear indication. He's speaking of either a believer or an unbeliever, one who qualifies or one who does not qualify, right? And so that is exactly what he's doing. So here, as legitimate sons, you and I are to endure. Endure discipline as legitimate sons, okay? And then you can add anything extra on that if you like to. All right, 12 to 14, the next key word in there is what? That's an easy one, sanctification. And what does he tell us we are to do? Pursue it. Okay, let's do some word studies as we just add this one in here. Let's look at that word sanctification. We did word studies, right? Lots of them. That was one, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, sanctification. And it was linked to another word. What was the other word that was a synonym? Holiness. That's right, holiness. Chapter 12, verse 10 and verse 14. And when you, when you looked at... Um, sanctification, the word sanctification itself, what number is it? 38. But when you look at the word holiness, what word is it? 41. But when you look at the definitions, what do they do? They overlap. <laughs> they, they unite to one. So in other words, they're synonyms to one another. Holiness and sanctification means the same thing. Okay. So by definition, what does it mean to be sanctified? Okay, can, it can mean simply the idea of being set apart. To share in his holiness, meaning what? Meaning that we are uh, we become sons of his and that we have that nature. That okay, it's kind of, you know, I always think about how when you look at the human relationship between a father and a son and when a son is very much like his father what 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 kind of things do you see about the son have you ever had a conversation with someone and they said oh don't do that that's you know I just saw your mother <laughs> that was your mother my husband has said that a few things he wasn't quite being well sometimes he's being nice but sometimes he's like oh you know but you, 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 yes, exactly. But, you know, I think about the old song, I have my father, I want my father's eyes or my father's hands, right? The idea is that you have the qualities and the characteristics that are, that are similar to the father. Obviously, we're in a fallen state. We will never have it to the, the, to the degree of holiness that is true holiness, but we are to reflect holiness, right? Because of, through sanctification. So, interesting does sanctification, is, in the context of what he's saying here, that we're to pursue it, then does it just happen by osmosis that as soon as you get saved, you, there is a sanctification that, that Craig mentioned that is a setting apart. And in that sanctification, it's actually speaking justification, right? You're sanctified in that you're set apart unto God. But in this context, is it speaking about being set apart unto God for, for justification? No, it's speaking about being set apart unto God in another way. What is that? The there you go. The effect of, very good. The effect of it, right? It's the living out of it. It's the exercising of it. It's the practice of those things. The New King James Version um, 
Yes. Cool. Yeah. So holiness and sanctification in the idea that you're pursuing it is not pursuing salvation. It's pursuing a faith walk. Right? It's walking out who God is in you and exhibiting it to the world. And you're to have the qualities, the attributes. And we didn't go into it, but when you, beside the omnis, which we, we don't have, right? We're not omnipresent. We're not omnipotent. We're not om, omniscient, although I sure wish I were. Um, but ha, and I'm certainly not the savior or the creator, but what are some other qualities about God that we didn't mention? What are some of his other qualities? He, he's righteous and he's just. just okay? Faithful. Holy. Faithful. Loving. Loving. Thank you. Loving. What else? Okay, now get your list out, Heinz. Time for your list. How about the fruit of the Spirit? Somebody know that verse? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Merciful. Righteous. We said that one. I'm incomprehensible. That's so true. I didn't know that. There's another quality of God I actually exhibit very well. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Just came to me. Thank you, Heinz. Jealous. Okay, jealous for what, though? Jealous for God's sake, right? So we can have a jealousy that is for God's sake that is holy and righteous and it would be exhibited properly it would be a good thing to exhibit but what kind of jealousy would not be good the the human jealousy okay but we're looking for qualities we can exhibit well we can exhibit his glory i guess but sort of to yeah we are we're a light in the world that's what he says okay all right so you're getting it you're catching the drift of it so we this is what we are to pursue the fruit of the Spirit and the living out of it because it's God in us and that we are to exhibit that then and, and pursue that as an act of, of enduring discipline as legitimate children. Fix eyes on Jesus, endure uh, as legitimate children, and pursue sanctification. Now let's go to 15 to 17. This one's really interesting, too, because this one couples itself, I think, with verse 25. Did you notice that? Where did Martha go? Margaret go? She left, didn't she? Um, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, what was that talking about? Did anybody have trouble with that one at all? What's going on there? Did anybody take the time to go back and do kind of a study on Esau? I know you didn't, it wasn't in the homework. I sure wish it had been. We had time for it. She didn't give us as much homework this week. Did you notice? 
There you go. And, and he gave for, for absolutely no reason at all, almost. Huh? <laughs> okay. So what does that tell you about his, about his attitude toward the inheritance? And what was the inheritance? Yeah, C can somebody tell me kind of in general what they think the inheritance was? What does the firstborn inherit? A well, a double portion. Number one, it, has, it does have to do with material things, but in the spiritual realm, what was the inheritance? The blessings. the blessings. And the blessings pertain to what? What had God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and now it's coming into Jacob and Esau, right? Land. The seed, the land, the nation, the promises of God, which... By the way, God says in, Gen in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 8, that when he preached these things to Abraham, who believed him, and it was credited to him as righteousness, that he was preaching to him the gospel. So these things, which were to be an inheritance to Esau, was the gospel, basically. And it was believing God, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's the inheritance that Esau was was to inherit as the firstborn and as the firstborn then he was to bear on his shoulders as a as a leader does the responsibility to be the spiritual leader and and promoter then of those promises to the next generations basically he would become the patriarch of the the next generations right but who became the patriarch jacob, jacob. now in that storyline here's the quirky stuff is Jacob innocent in all of the actions that occur? No. Jacob really has a lot of things to answer for, and God does deal with him, does he not? Yes. Now, we didn't take the time to go in there, but Jacob, he lies, he manipulates, he, and he does deceive his brother. He's his name, his initial name, Jacob, meant supplanter. It meant to basically take what wasn't yours in the place of someone else. That was what his name literally meant. Um, and so it, you could get lost in the message of Esau by getting tangled in with, well, yeah, but Jacob, blah, 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 blah. Wasn't Esau innocent because he got tricked, right? No, no, thank you, no. And how do we know this? Thank you. Is that not what he even actually says? For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. What did he sought for? For repentance? No, the inheritance. What he wanted was the physical inheritance. He wasn't looking for the spiritual inheritance. He was looking for the, the, he wanted the blessing of physical life that his father was to bestow upon him as the firstborn, and he didn't get it, and that's what he was looking for. So when you mark your keywords in there, the word desired to inherit, I marked that as, as a, as, as in a certain color. And then the word it is marked in the same way because that's what he was talking about. And he found no place for repentance when afterwards, afterwards what? After he rejected the inheritance, after he sold it for a simple bowl of porridge, right? A, a small bowl of food. He says then there was no, no inheritance. Now, just to confirm for people who maybe didn't have time to do this. I, I just want to show you a few verses, and it's a review of something we did back in Ezekiel, for one thing, but I'm going to start in Malachi and show you. Now, I have the whole 
I went through and just kind of cut and pasted, and if you'd like, I guess I could send this out too with my attachments, but kind of the storyline of Esau, bits and pieces of it. Okay, just so I could go through and see some of the things that were going on in their lives and what he did and so forth. Well, then at the, at the end, there's a couple of uh, pro prophetic words about Esau by God through the prophets that comes later, okay, that absolutely validate to you that Esau was an unbeliever, that he had rejected the promises of God and, and ultimately the salvation of God right? Because he had not put his faith in hoping God. As a matter of fact, when you go back and look at this, this storyline, what you see him doing is everything contrary to what God told him to do. He takes wives from foreign lands. He has multiple lives. Um, he, he does all kinds of things he's not supposed to do. Okay, so now, and Jacob gets dealt with, and, and he eventually bows his knee. He wrestles with God in the wilderness until God will bless him, it says. And God blesses him and changes his name on that day. What does that tell you? When a name is changed, what? what is the, what's the subject? It's a, it's a covenant. He's, he had his name changed. On the day he had his name changed by God, he entered into, into faith by salvation. Same as his father Abraham had done before. I didn't. I looked at it, but I didn't. Go. Do you have something you want to read? Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Now, no, here's the, here's the real connection. Go back to, to Hebrews chapter 4, where it says that God does what? What does he examine? He examines the heart. He knows the thought and the intent. And so with Esau, um, he knew, when did God know that Esau was not going to follow him? Before the foundation of the earth and before he was born. What did God, what did God do prophetically through the mother about the two that were in her womb. What did he say about them? The older will serve the younger, right? So God had already impressed on the mom that there was going to be a surplanting, right? That, that the, what was not in the natural order of human design where the older is supposed to get that, that blessing and that position. He didn't. The younger got it. And God knew this. Okay, but, so let me just show you some verses, I'm just going to read a couple real quick. One's out of Malachi, uh, it's chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Is, I'm just doing a little snitchet of it. Um, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us, us Israel? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I hated Esau. That's where that quote comes from, okay? I have made his mountains a desolation, Esau's mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though, though Edom says, now who is Edom? It's his descendants. It's, it's Esau's descendants are Edom. Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build up, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory. 
and the people uh, toward whom the Lord has indignation forever. Now, he is speaking here of a national judgment, okay? So you don't, you do, again, you got to split hairs. You got to know your doctrines. God deals with us individually, but then there are times when he also deals nationally. And in this case, he's saying of Edom as a nation, it's going down. Because its root and its foundation and it, the principles upon which it was built and established was through the unfaith of the son Esau. And from that generation on, the nation was built as an unbelieving nation. Okay, so the nation is going down, is what he says. Um, Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified above the border of Israel. Okay, so if, here's, here's something interesting though. If Esau had turned to God and had repented and accepted the consequences of his actions, right? God would have forgiven him and blessed him. Now, he still would have had the consequences of not having that blessing. It still would have gone through Jacob. But he could have repented, but he didn't, and God knew he wouldn't. God knew it before it even occurred, that it was never going to happen. So God knew this sovereignly. However, he did have the option It was in his hand to make the choice, and he didn't do it. But because God examines the heart and knows the intention of the hearts and the the thought, he saw from before his birth that Esau's demise was inevitable. Okay? Now, another one is in Ezekiel, where we studied a few months back, or maybe it's been a year or two now. Um, It runs together, doesn't it? (laughs) I know, time flies. Ezekiel 35, 1 to 15, and I'm going to, I'm not sure if I'm going to read Maybe. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Do you remember this? Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. And say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir. Now, Mount Seir is who? Esau and his descendants. That's their land, their country. And say to them, I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste to your cities and you will become a desolation. Then you will know, what? That I am am the Lord. You guys are good. You remembered your old phrase from Ezekiel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So apparently Esau did not know that God was the Lord. Neither did his descendants after him. His nation did not operate on those principles. And therefore God is saying of this nation, it's coming down. Daniel says, I raise up kings, I put down kings, but he also raises up nations and he puts down nations. This is one that has a demise on its horizon. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity. You guys remember this? At the time of the punishment of the end, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you, since you have not hated bloodshed. Therefore, bloodshed will pursue you. He goes on at the end in verse 15. As you rejoice over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate. When did Israel become desolate? When God judged it and removed his presence from the temple and from the city, and he allowed them to go into Babylonian captivity, right? And he says, because you rejoiced over that, um, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, so that gives you a little backdrop on Esau and this particular point that we're at right now, just so you can see that. Um, however confused you are about whatever in there, I want you to understand that, that Esau was rightly judged by God, 
and that um, his, the example that's being used in here as, is a comparison of an unfaithful son who would not be what? He would not be disciplined by the Lord. What was the lack of discipline that initiated this whole thing? The day he was hungry and he would not pursue and hold fast to the hope. He wouldn't hold on to the glory of what God was going to do through that nation, Israel. And he didn't value it as precious above all things. He sold it to his brother for a bowl of soup. Yeah, so no endurance in suffering, no, um, n- no value for the, the things that are to be valued, which is godliness and the pursuit of God himself. By faith, you must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, and he didn't believe either one of those things. And so he, he sold it. So in that, what does he say that you are to do? What is the picture then of that? He found no place for repentance. That means what happened to him? Okay. He, he's, still a, he's still a wanderer spiritually. He's unsaved, right? So how would you title verse uh, 15 to 17? <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. What does he get? He gives them an instruction. See to it what? See to it. No one comes short of the grace of God. Like who? Like Esau. So in other words... Again, he's introducing the potential that the, the congregation he's speaking to, there could be among them those who, like Esau, won't endure discipline, are willing to, to basically turn over righteous living and holiness and pursuit of God for the sake of leisure, pleasure, comfort, what, whatever, family pressure. In this case, some of them being tempted to go back to the old way of worshiping, right? And, they're, and if, they're not, if they're like that, you are to see to it that none of you come short of the grace of God. Understand. In other words, you can't be a church that doesn't make it clear that to follow Christ means pick up your cross and follow me. There is a, there is a, a, a me, there, there's a, a, what do you call it, a, a counting of what, what it costs to follow Christ. There needs to be that counting. What does it cost him? Pick up your cross. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That means you have to preach that which is going to bring, bring you into true grace. 18 to 24 is about this new covenant, right? Shows the old covenant versus the new covenant in there. One mountain versus the other mountain. And in essence, he says, um, be, you're to endure discipline because you've come to what? What have you now entered into? Yeah, having come to a new covenant. And that is everything he just taught in the chapters before this. So in those verses, he's saying, you're to endure discipline because you have come to a new covenant. It's not like the old one. It's, it's a new one. And then in 25 to 27, then he tells them to do what? Endure it and do not what? Do not refuse. And this is really interesting. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Uh, 
goes back to chapter, I think it's chapter 3, verse 1, where he says it's a heavenly calling. And he says, and then chapter 1, verse 1, he says, and when he came, he spoke in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but now in this present time, he's spoken to us how? In his son, Jesus Christ. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Because, now there's a because statement. It's really neat, the way he concludes that. There's a therefore and, a, and also a for at the verse of 29. The first, the first word in verse 20. For. So he tells you, therefore, we are going to receive this kingdom, and I want you to serve him in an acceptable way. Therefore, endure discipline through serving him. Why? Because God is a, so here's your motivator. <laughs> because if you don't, you just need to remember God is a consuming fire. You could add on that, serve him. Um, how does it say it? Uh, serve him. Yeah, acceptable service. Yeah, I'll just leave it like that for now. So that's good. All right.